text messaging, even with uh, my old-fashioned phone, I can send uh, text messages to people. In fact, uh, frequently, I think today, people send text messages instead of calling uh, someone if they just want to know a quick piece of information or just send a, a word of encouragement or ask a question. Today, we uh, tend to send text messages more than uh, picking up the phone and calling others. Did you know? I did not know this till this week, or at least if I knew it, I had forgotten it. That the first text message, the first text message ever sent was on December 3rd, 1992. December 3rd, 1992, a 22-year-old British engineer, Neil Papworth, uh, sent, from, uh, sent from his computer, actually, he sent the first text message to uh, an orbital phone. So he sent a text message to a phone like that. You can see uh, right at the top, you can kind of see where the message would have been read. The first one ever sent, December 3rd, 1992, this 22-year-old sent the message, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That is, uh, according to my research and what I could find, the first text message that was ever sent. So we send text messages all the time. But the first text message ever sent was a joyous Christmas greeting. Merry Christmas. And we've been uh, thinking about uh, Christmas. We've been thinking about the coming of Jesus. When we think about Christmas, we think about the coming of Jesus. We often think about the angels that we've talked about already. The messengers from on high, the messengers from God that told others of this coming birth, and then when it happened, uh, proclaimed it uh, to the shepherds and to others. So we think about the angels, and we think about their message, and we often think about the message they delivered to Mary. Think about the word that was given to Mary. But We need to make sure at Christmas that we don't forget that Mary was not the only person to receive a divine message. Uh, that her husband Joseph also, among others, received a message. And from the message that the angels gave to Jesus, the message that the messengers from God gave to Joseph about Jesus, uh, we can learn some important things from that message. There are important truths about Jesus Christ that we learn from the message given to Joseph. So turn, if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and go to verse 18. We looked at uh, the genealogy in Matthew last week, and we noticed that uh, different thing, that amazing thing, uh, that he lists five women in the genealogy, and we talked about the mothers, the grandmothers of Jesus from his earthly line, and what we can learn from that, and how that ought to impact how we understand Christmas, and why Matthew started his story of Jesus' birth this way. And today we want to turn... And going a little different direction, we want to think about the fathers of Jesus, both what we learn from Father God uh, about Jesus uh, and what we learn from Joseph, this message given to Joseph, what we can learn about message, or what we can learn about Jesus from the message given to Joseph. So mothers of Jesus last week, fathers of Jesus this week, and all of it's under the rubric of this Christmas secret that we are called to proclaim and tell others about. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or this is the way it happened. When it says, Mother Mary was espoused 
to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So they have not uh, had intercourse. They have not been together in that kind of way. Uh, the engagement in that world, it was more, a much more official type thing than engagement is practiced in our society. So, so they were really already committed together uh, to one another in important ways, but they, they, have, not, uh, they have not joined this union uh, together yet uh, in sort of an intimate way. So, so it's before they've come together, she was found with child, but whose child is this? Child of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he's a righteous man, he's a, he's a good man, more than a good man though. He's, he's, a, he's a man that apparently wants to do right by others and right by God. Being a just man and not willing to make her a public example. He could have done that, but he doesn't want to do that. He was minded, he thought to himself, to put her away privately, to break this off, to end this but he's going to do it in a private way, not a public way. But while he thought on these things, ever had things that have gripped your mind and consumed your thoughts and you think about them and you dwell on them? Well, Joseph is thinking on these things, the fact that his, that his uh, wife-to-be, his spouse, is pregnant. He's thinking about these things and what he ought to do. And behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Thou son of David, fear not, fear not to take unto you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is a deliverer. He is a, he's a savior. Like Joshua of old... He will save his people, but he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Would you say that after me? Say Emmanuel. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Joseph, you are to name him Jesus. They shall call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him or instructed him. And he took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew takes, if you read the entire gospel, which some of you have done uh, this year, Matthew takes several opportunities throughout his gospel to show that Jesus is not just another angelic creature and that Jesus is not, although he is a teacher, he's not just another human teacher. In today's text, verse 20 of chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph specifically that the child in Mary's body is not from a man, but from the Spirit of God. God is Jesus' Father. And that is shocking. It was shocking then, and it is shocking today. I remember as a uh, freshman 
at Cumberland University, where I first started at. And I remember I was really active in the Baptist Student Union there. They used to call it that back then, the Baptist Student Union. And I was really active in FCA, very, very active in both organizations. And I remember one day, and it was, it was kind of the first time in my life I'd ever experienced something like this. I remember one day some of us that were part of these groups that I don't remember where we were, if we were on a retreat, if we were just eating lunch somewhere. But it came up, the obstacles that other college students had with the gospel. And one of the, one of the individuals was talking about, well, you know, some of the miracles in the Bible are just hard to accept. I mean, the story of Jonah and a well doing this, that's, that's hard to accept. And they named several other things. And they said, you know, and I just sometimes wish maybe if we didn't even know all that, maybe people would be, uh, would be more uh, open to the gospel. And I actually said... Uh, and spoke up, and, and a lot of this probably had to do with my raising. I spoke up at that time, and I said, uh, I don't think you're right. I don't think that would make it any easier for them to accept the Christian message if these miracles, particularly in the Old Testament, were some, or these stories in the Old Testament were not there, like God stopping the sun during a battle and other things. I said, I, I honestly think if, if you took those away, people really still would not become Christians because, because of this. Because Christianity hinges upon this idea that God has come in flesh and that Jesus was more than just a human teacher. That God was more than just another prophet. This is God. If you believe that today, that this is the Son of God, say amen. Maybe you can't say amen to that yet, right? I want you to listen to what the Word of God has to say and I want you to allow the Word of God to be open to the Word of God speaking to you. God is Jesus' Father. This is part and parcel of the gospel, that God is Jesus' Father. It makes that clear in verse 20. It makes it even clearer in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The interpretation of that name is what? God with us. Not God with us metaphorically, but God literally with us in this child. Shocking for a Jewish writer like Matthew to say this. Now, I will admit, to those who follow the Eastern religions of the world, this is not that shocking. Eastern religions hold that God is this sort of impersonal force. Kind of like in Star Wars, God is this impersonal force that animates everything, that holds everything together. So in Eastern religions, it would not be as shocking to say that God might be in a child. Not quite as shocking. To the Greeks and Romans, who will later hear the word of God and hear this gospel, not quite as shocking to them, because they believe that their own gods like Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, would often disguise themselves as human beings and uh, walk among us. But those gods are a little different because they're only disguised as human beings. They're not God and humans. They're always just gods disguised as human flesh. But for an observant Jew to begin a good news to other People, particularly Jews that Matthew is writing to, to say that God uh, is with this, with us, in this child. Shocking, because the Hebrew Scriptures teach 
that God is not a being contained within the universe. He's not a force that is a part of the universe. The Hebrew scripture from beginning to end, starting with the narrative at the very beginning of the Bible that God created the world, Hebrew scriptures makes clear that God is not a being contained within the universe. God is the universe's ground of existence. He both allows it to exist and he is above the world that he has created. Now I do mean that metaphorically, right? I say that. He, he created the world, but he's outside of it. That's what I mean by above it. He's not within it. And yet Matthew, Matthew and those first believers that embraced Jesus, they came, and it came in fits. It came in spurts. It took them a while to realize it all. It really took after the resurrection of Jesus for them to fully begin to grasp this. But Matthew and these other early believers came to believe and confess that Jesus was not just a great teacher explaining God's ways. They came to believe and confess that he was not just a great prophet calling others to God. They came to realize what the angels told Joseph, that Jesus was God. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But this creates a crisis. It created a crisis throughout the encounters that Jesus, as he grew from the little baby we sang about in the manger, as he grew to be a man, this reality that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, continually created crisis moments for others. What is a crisis? If you're having a crisis, what is going on uh, in your life? Crisis is a fork in the road. It is when events have reached a point that you're at a fork in the road and you have to make a decision and it's not, it's not really an easy decision. It's a tough decision, so it's creating a crisis. And you're unsure and uncertain. That's the crisis of which road you need to go on, right? You're at a crossroads. What do you do? Because you know, whichever fork in the road you take, that your life will not be the same. The news that Jesus is God, the fact that God walked among us presents a crisis. When we read of Jesus' accounts in the Gospels, he's like a billiard ball, right? You know what a billiard ball is? Right, Matthew, show them, show them the, the slide there. You know, what, you know what a billiard ball is, correct, right? A billiard ball is the little white ball in pool right up there at the top. And you begin a game of, of eight ball in pool. You have, all, you have a little triangle, all the balls are in there except the, except the, uh, the cue ball, right? That's the white ball. And you've got this cue ball that's the white ball. You've got all the other billiard balls. You've got the cue ball there. And you hit the cue ball, the white ball. And what does it do? You hit it down in the little triangle of all the other balls. And they shatter. And they go in different directions. And what God with us does in the life of Jesus and what he does today is that when Jesus encounters others, he is like a cue ball on a pool table. When he makes contacts with others in the gospel, he breaks up the old. He breaks it up, or he, or, he, or he makes the old move in new directions. And Jesus is constantly encountering people and challenging them in ways to send them off over there, send them off over here, change their life right here in a different way than they ever imagined. Jesus brings crisis over and over. This is why one of the ways he's described as one who has brought a sword. He has brought a sword. He brings crisis to people. When people encounter God with them, remember one of the things that John teaches us 
is that we prefer darkness to light. The fact that Jesus the light has come to live with people. And it still is true today. People still prefer the darkness of this world to the light of Jesus. So what happens when this, when this cue ball Jesus comes shattering into the lives of people in the gospel, it brings forth crisis and that brings forth extreme actions. In Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospels, John's gospel, they show us these extreme actions that people take when they meet Jesus. Some people try to kill Jesus. They try to stone Jesus. They try to throw Jesus off cliffs because he's creating a crisis in their life. Other people beg Jesus. They beg Jesus and they cry out to Jesus, but not in worship. They beg Jesus and cry, try to Jesus to leave, to leave them alone, to just let them be in the old pattern of life. But there are others who do the opposite. There are others that beg and cry out to Jesus, but it is a spirit of worship. So some try to kill him, stone him, throw him off cliffs. Others beg Jesus to leave them alone, but others bow down and worship, either literally or within their hearts. They have a heart of worship. Why? Why are the reactions in the gospel of Matthew and the others so extreme and so different when Jesus is encountered? Because of this. Because he is either God or he is not. He is either the most exalted of all or he is a fraud. Maybe even a demon of hell itself. See, when we just think of the baby... And if we can just keep him as a baby, right, then we can keep him, he's still kind of safe. But this is a baby that will grow up, that will walk and talk, and will cast out demons, and also tell others that they are withered up and dried and dead. So we who worship Jesus, what is he to us? What is he to you? Jesus is our hope. He's our hope that there is a purpose for living. Jesus is our hope that there is life after the death of this world. Jesus is our hope that evil, pain, and suffering will end. Jesus is our holy, living, and loving hope. Right Now think about a God who is only holy. Because it's important that he is a holy and loving God. If you have a God that is only holy, he could never come to be with us. If he was only holy. He would never come to be with us. Because if God was only holy, he would never come to be with us because we would never be uh, perfect, we would never be complete, we would never be right, and he is. And we know that a holy God, that, that, that he, 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 the, the, the presence of sin, the presence of corruption, the presence of evil has no place within him, and he has no place for that. And so a God that is only holy, he's not going to come down to this earth as Emmanuel. And there's no way for you to get right with him. So if you have only a holy God, if that's all he is, it's just holy, then he would never come because he could not be with us. He would just cast us out. He would just say, depart. He would cut us off from his presence forever. Man, if it is good to know that our brothers and sisters in France and in, and in Africa and in Asia and in Haiti and in this church and the church down the street, if it's good to know that the presence of God can be with all of us, say amen. That's because he is a holy God, but he's more than a holy God. If he's just holy, then he, then he can't come and be with us. 
But if he's just loving, in the sense of this sort of false, politically correct sense of love that's very prominent in our world today, well, if he's loving, then he wouldn't come either. He could, if, he's, if the way we think about loving, he could. Like, and if he did come, he just, he, what he'd do is you know, he'd just give you a big hug and tell you that it's all going to be okay and that everything's all right, and then he'd leave you right where you are because there'd be nothing for him to do, right, in the way that we conceive of love. This God with us, he is a holy, loving God. He is both. He, he is a God that is both holy and, and hates sin and despises sin. But he's also a loving God, and that loving God compelled that holy, holy God to come, right? In Philippians, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it's in Philippians that it talks about. And I, I know, especially if you're Wednesday night, I go back to Philippians all the time. But it's there that it tells us what Jesus did. That Jesus came. And this is this Paul's theology is connected right here to what Matthew is telling us. He came. This is God who's both holy and loving. And so we worship him because this holy, loving God did not. If he was only holy, he would judge you and destroy you. If he was only the all-accepting God of love that our world preaches about today, then he wouldn't need to come. And if he did, he'd just just give you a big hug and that'd be it. But this is a true God, so holy that he cannot act as if your sin does not have consequences. And he's come to give you more than just a hug and pretend and lie to you and tell you that everything's okay. God in his holy love, Emmanuel, God with us, has come to save you from sin to save you, and better than just giving you a hug and leaving you there, he's come to save you from sin and to fetch you back to Creator God. If Jesus is worthy of praise, say amen. This is God with us. And so I said in the beginning, there's some things that Joseph's message that he receives from the angels teach us that we need to know. So his message matters just like the message to Mary will matter. What do we learn? Well, we learn from this name that Jesus, this child, is God. God with us. He is God. But we also learn through this message that this child is a human. He is God, but he is also a human. God with us. Jesus is one of us. He is truly God, truly human. Now, one of the big arguments among philosophers has been what matters more. Does the absolute matter more than the particulars? Does the one matter more than the many? Uh, Plato, right? Plato said the ideal matters more than the concrete. What did Plato mean by that? He said, well, you got chairs everywhere, right? You got, you got chairs all over the place. And he said, but what matters are not all these individual chairs. It's that perfect chair in your mind. That perfect chair in your mind that you envision, right? Maybe you're building a house and you get the perfect house in your mind. Whatever it is, maybe you got a Christmas tree and in your mind you have imagined the perfect Christmas tree. And Plato said what matters is the world of ideas. Because in the world of ideas that we then flesh that out into things. And so Plato said, Plato said you need to focus on ideas and you need to focus on things, right? Plato, Plato said that. But Aristotle... Right, Plato was a student of Socrates, and Aristotle, uh, right there, right after Plato, he says, no, 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 the real things are better. What matters most is not the ideal. It's the real, tangible thing that you can hold and feel and, and look at. That's what matters most. 
And I want to tell you something today. Philosophers have argued about this. Probably since we've had written language, they have probably debated these kind of ideals. What matters more, the real thing or the ideal? Did you know that in Emmanuel, all those walls are, are torn down? And the folly of human philosophy is exposed for just that. Because if this is true, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, then that means that in Jesus, the ideal has become the real. The absolute has become a particular person. The invisible God has become an invisible human being that can, that can eat and breathe and bleed for your sin. So we say to Plato and we say to Aristotle, we hold up the foolishness of the gospel. And we say it is not either the ideal or the real. Wrong. It is Jesus. Because in Jesus, these walls that we construct disappear. So the message to Joseph, it teaches us that Jesus is God. He is God. But he is human. He is God with us. So we learn that he is God. We learn that he is human. And we learn that he is with. He is with us. Now when things in life are going well, life can be wonderful. In fact, when things are going well, when you're healthy and, and full of energy, and when you're doing something you're passionate about, whether it's work or whether it's some form of play, or maybe cooking, or what you know, whatever whatever it is that you enjoy. It's great to meet God. Whatever you enjoy, when life is going well, and you have energy, and you feel well, life is exhilarating. I mean, life life is fun, man. I I I mean, I used to I used to love uh, when I was eleventh, twelfth grade, freshman year of college. Uh, what kind of those three years of my life? I used to love going to the lake. I mean, I love going to the lake. And I couldn't, couldn't wait. You know, some of my friends that had boats, I loved it when they would call. And they would say, hey, can you go to the lake this afternoon? Uh, can, can you go? Can you go this morning? Can you go? And used to love to go to the lake. And there was something exhilarating about being out in the lake and swimming and, and, and being in the boats and just having fun. And, 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 man, when you're doing something you enjoy, whether it's work or whether it's play and you feel good, life is exhilarating. But when things go wrong, when you are suffering... Life begins to feel lonely. And other people can share encouraging words to you. They can share words of encouragement, but oftentimes they seem empty to us. But, but when you're going through something, and you encounter and meet somebody who's been through the exact same thing, whether it's an illness, whether it's a personal crisis, when you meet somebody that has been through the exact same thing you have, and they begin to share with you, and they begin to encourage you, oftentimes those people can break through in ways that everybody else cannot. It becomes easier for you to listen and to pour your heart out to them because they have been through the very thing that you are going through because they know. Listen, our Christmas secret to the world is that God with us means that Jesus became one of us, which means that he knows. 
So when we pray for Allison today and we pray for her mission that she's going on, God knows because he too went on a mission to reach out to those that were lost. When you pray to God from a spirit of emptiness and pain and loneliness, he knows what it feels like because you read the Gospels and he, he felt those very same emotions. You see, in Jesus, the unapproachable holy God becomes known. He becomes a human that can be loved. And loves us back in a way that we understand. God has always been love. But in Jesus that love begins to be expressed to us in a way that we can comprehend in a very, in a very deep way. Because he is actually one of us. So how do we love him back? Through faith. Through faith we both experience this love of God. The New Testament teaches And we love him back. And then faith compels us to what the book of James teaches on. It compels us to work. So our work becomes a form of love when it is based on faith. This is the secret of Christmas. That God is God. But in Jesus, God is a human and God. And he is with us. Would you say that after me? Say, with us. Does that bring a little joy to your heart to know that God is with you today? Does that bring a little peace? I'm going to be honest. Just preaching this. Is this on or has it been off the whole time? Can you guys hear me? Okay. That does not bring me peace, okay? Just talking about this brings peace to me. That's why Christmas touches people in a deeply emotional way who really have some inkling of what's going on. And oftentimes our society and people around us who don't know all of the secret, they only know a little bit, it does something to them as well. Because the truth is, again, as John says, and as the whole Old Testament shows us, the reason the genealogy we saw last week of the women is so bad is because the human race is so bad and it is so dark. But knowing that God has come to love us, to not just judge us, to not just cast us off, but to love us and to save us. If this brings peace to your heart, say amen. This is the secret of Christmas, that Jesus is God, that he is human, and he is God with us. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of God not as a cloud, although he came as a cloud before. We celebrate the presence of God not as a fiery pillar, but he came as a fiery pillar before. We celebrate the coming of God not as a rushing wind, but he has expressed himself that way before and I think at other times. But at Christmas we don't celebrate the rushing wind or the fiery pillar or the cloud. We celebrate this child, this baby. Now, I keep pressing that he doesn't stay a baby. But I do want to say this, why a baby? Why didn't he just show up kind of like we think Adam, most of us think Adam was, you know, right? We read the account and we we say, well, Adam shows up as a grown man in the story of the Bible. Why when Jesus comes, he, he could have done that. He could have just showed up as a prophet on the scene. Why a baby? Well, I think about my own, my own children. Ethan and Owen, when they were babies, they would let you hug them. They would let you smooch them on the cheek. They would let you pick them up like they were babies. You just did that, and they, unless unless there was something wrong, they would just let you do it. 
In fact, they wanted as babies. And I wasn't able to do that a lot with Owen because of some illness. But with Ethan, I was able to do that all the time. And they wanted you to do that. But now my boys have their own agendas. They have their own purposes, right? They have their own, their own things that they desire. Why did God come at Christmas as a baby? Not reveal His presence as a cloud, as fire, or wind? And because in the incarnation, maybe God came as a baby because this time he was coming not to bring just judgment, but he was actually coming to bear your judgment. He was coming not to just pronounce the price of sin. He was coming to pay the price for your sin. He was coming not to just tell about the narrow road to God. but He was also coming to break down the barriers between the human family and their maker. Maybe he came as a baby because he had to do all these things and to really know you and to know us. He chose to experience all that we experience. This is Emmanuel, God with us. So practically, what does this mean for you, right? We're at the conclusion of a good message. We've said amen. I hope today, and I've kind of sensed it, a little warmness in our hearts when we think about that Jesus had come in the darkness of the world, that he is Emmanuel. Many of, you, many of you already know these truths, but we have to remind ourselves and tell them to us again so they guide our lives. But what does this mean practically for you? If you think that it takes courage for Allison to go to France, to minister to North Africans, to minister to Muslims, if you think that takes courage, would you say Amen. Right, it does. But Joseph had to exercise courage. And so do you. So do you. In fact, to follow Jesus means there must be bravery and courage every day. Joseph had to exercise bravery to accept the angelic message that he received. Because it would take bravery to raise God's son. Now remember, bravery and courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid, right? Your fathers teach this or your mothers teach this when you're young. If you have good parents, they teach you this when you're young. That being brave or having courage does not mean that you're not scared. In fact, bravery and courage means that fear is always there. That's part of having bravery and courage is that you are afraid. But having bravery or courage means that you move beyond that fear to do what is right. So the angel says to Joseph, fear not, because fear is there. But he will need courage and bravery to push through the fear. It will take bravery to raise God's son. And it will take bravery for you to do what is right this week. But you need today, you need to take courage and trust Jesus. Because you will need courage like Joseph to trust Jesus. Joseph had to face what? I'm sure. I'm sure he was worried about the scorn of his friends and his family, who he probably in his mind thought and and maybe were whispering, okay, either you got this girl pregnant before she was married, because we can do the math, or she was sleeping around with somebody else. Either you got her pregnant, or she was sleeping around with somebody else. Can you imagine Joseph responding with the truth? No! The Holy Spirit caused the pregnancy. Scorn. While we don't face the physical persecution, 
that Christians face in other countries, there is an increasing scorn in our society from certain sectors, an increasing ridicule in new ways. There's always been scorn and ridicule. But there are new ways that believers are being, believers are being scorned and ridiculed. Those who hold to Jesus, especially those who refuse to abandon the historic truths that the Christian church through time and space has taught about Jesus, those who will not abandon this increasingly face scorn in our land. But take heart at Christmas because Emmanuel means that God is with you in the face of the scorn that you face at school, from friends, from family, from elites, from those in the lower rungs of society who just say, God, come on, engage in these activities. Emmanuel means that God is with you. Just as Joseph had to face the scorn, you can too. Not just scorn when you need courage for. Practically, this word, Emmanuel, God with us, means that you will need courage like Joseph to surrender your rights and your dreams. Now, I believe what God often does, oftentimes He does the things that we most desire, if they are good things, He actually enables us to experience them. He does. Like It's amazing to me how many times this happens. I'm not going to say it always happens. But many times, people who follow the Lord do get to experience desires of their heart. But it seems to me, all the time, that never occurs in the ways that they imagined if they're faithfully following Him. There's always curves in the road that happen when you follow Jesus because He is directing you, not you. And it takes courage. Young person, it takes courage. Middle-aged person, it takes courage. Elderly person, it takes courage. Men and women, it takes courage to surrender your rights and dreams to Jesus. Now I want you to catch this as we wind down. I want, I want you, this is one of the things I want you to take home with you today. The angel tells Joseph what to name Jesus. He tells him, not only do you need to stay with Mary, this is what you will name the child. Now, when my wife and I are going to name our kids, we had a discussion. We came to an agreement, right? There, there were a couple of names that I threw out there that, like, I mean, you know, my wife and I, divorce is not on the table for us. We don't talk about divorce. We don't contemplate divorce. When we get upset with each other, divorce is not something that, that's, that, that we engage in. But I will say this. Probably the closest looks to like, I'm going to leave you, was when I said a couple names to her and said, let's name our son this. And man, Rosa, I'm telling you, it's like, I'm out of this house if you try to do this. I'll go move in with my dad. I'll be back in Paintsville, eating at Dairy Queen if you try to name that child that. We, we had a discussion. In ancient Israel, unless you had just a, a really different kind of husband, that husband, when it came to a son was not having a discussion with you about what he was going to name his boy. There was not going to be a discussion. There was not going to be a debate. There was not going to be. It was an absolute right in the patriarchal society of Israel for a father to name his child because that name had meaning and that name had purpose and it was the right of the father, an absolute right to say, this is what my son is, 
this is what he will be. This is what I dream for him. Now, sometimes, you know, we've read some Old Testament stuff together. Well, sometimes the names are really rough because it, it, it reflects what was going on in that clan, in that family. But they had an absolute right to name the, to name the son. But God shows up to Joseph and he says, not only do I want you to raise this child, but I'm taking away your right to name this child because you will not manage or direct this child like other people manage and direct their sons because this is my son. And I'm, you're not going to tell the world, Joseph, what he's going to do. I am going to tell the world. In fact, for thousands of years, through my prophets and through my word, I have been telling the world what this child's story will be. So I will name the child. Now for us, okay, God named him, Joseph didn't. But you need to think about what's most precious to you. And imagine that God says, I love you, but I'm not going to let you do that. I want you to surrender your right to do that because I've got something else for you that I want to do. That takes courage. And it takes bravery. It takes courage and it takes bravery to push through the fear of believing that you know what's best. To trust that God knows what's best. So Joseph, he surrenders his right to manage this child's life. Many times people will not follow Jesus because they don't want to give up X, Y, or Z to be a Christian. And maybe that's you. Most of us here today are Christians. But there are one or two of you here today that I don't know that well, and I don't know your story, and I don't know everything about you. And maybe you are a Christian, but you've been in the business of reclaiming or holding on to rights that really aren't yours anymore. They belong to God. And you need courage. You need the courage that an angel spoke unto Joseph. Courage to surrender your rights and your dreams to the Savior of the world. What does it mean that God is with us? It means courage to face the scorn of the world. Courage to obediently surrender your rights. And thirdly, that God is with us means you need the courage to admit that you are a sinner. Emmanuel, God with us. But in, within that plural us is a singular you. Who desires to be God with you? Are you hurting? Are you lonely? Jesus desires to be with you. How? By faith. By faith today that you can experience the presence of Emmanuel. God with us. God with you. You have to admit your sin you have to surrender your control to this God who has come to be with us. Maybe today you need to do that. Maybe today you believe that this is God with us. and You believe that this God with you, Jesus, loves you and died for you. But maybe today you need to ask for the courage to live, for, to live with conviction in this fallen world, or you need to ask the Lord for courage to surrender your rights. Maybe one of you, your heart is being pulled on. 
it could be to do mission service somewhere else, or it could be a mission right here in your hometown. Maybe there is a name. Maybe there's a person that you know you need to share this Christmas. You need to share the Christmas story with them. I don't want to elevate my family above others, but that's my experiences. And one reason I respect my mother so much, and by the way, you need wisdom and discernment before you go out and do this, okay? So when I say this, and you think your context, you need wisdom and discernment. But wisdom and discernment does not mean to create excuses to not tell the story. So my mom's a public school teacher. You can't tell them about Jesus. You can't do that. You can't tell them. You can't tell them. Can I tell you? My mom just found ways to tell them. Because sometimes in your life you have to make a decision. You need wisdom and you need discernment. But the wisdom and discernment is not so we can create a thousand excuses to not tell because it might cost us something. We need wisdom and discernment so that we will go and tell. This is the greatest story that God is with us. Go and tell somebody else. Would you stand with me, Brother Cecil? Come. What do you need courage for? What do you need courage for today? What in your life, what is it that you need courage from God? You don't even have to wait. You don't have to wait till the music starts. If you need a time, solemn time of prayer, you can do it there. But oftentimes it is good to step out and to pray. There's an action within yourself that God, I recognize I need courage for this. You need courage today, the Lord offers it to you. In a moment, we're going to pray for Allison for courage. We're going to sing a first verse for you, for you. And listen, if you need to come this morning, you come and give your hopes, your dreams, give your sin to Jesus. If you need to come, listen, you come. Father God, we ask right now, Lord, if there's one in a few, young or old, Father God, I pray that they would step out, that they would respond by faith, that they would trust you today. Lord, be with us in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.